and welcome to Vax Talk. This is a podcast that is the bane of measles everywhere. My <laughs> name is Karen Ernst and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra and I'm a General Pediatrician in Des Moines, Iowa. And today we are talking about National Immunization Awareness Month again, but this time we're talking about how vaccines aren't just for kids. Mm-hmm. Grown-ups need their vaccines too. And to discuss today's topic, we have someone really exciting, Dr. Bill Schaffner, who is a professor of preventive medicine um, at Vanderbilt University, and he's also an infectious disease specialist. So welcome, Dr. Schaffner. Hi, Karen, and hello, Nathan. And I should also mention that Dr. Schaffner is a valued member of Voices for Vaccines Scientific Advisory Board and is one of the people who makes sure that everything that we post on our website is accurate and he's done a fantastic job for us this week in fact so thank you for doing all that dr schaffner sure so we've invited you here to talk about adult immunization most people are pretty well aware that about 95 percent of american kids are fully immunized and we're happy about that but i'm wondering if uh what is the how does that compare to adults are adults as well immunized as children oh karen give me a rest uh (laughs) you know (laughs) once you cross the threshold of the 19th birthday because that's the definition of adult in immunization land then things become much less certain you know when you're an infant uh, a child or an adolescent your mom usually and your pediatrician and family doctor uh, they know about the immunization schedule and frankly whether you receive your services your healthcare services from a public source or a private source of insurance immunizations are pretty well covered we can work around the edges a little bit and make it even better but by and large we're doing a very good job however that all changes once you become an adult. As you know, there are many people who do not have insurance. Uh, The Affordable Care Act has added a lot of people with benefits that include vaccines, but you know, the Affordable Care Act is under threat. Uh, Even the public programs provide uh, spotty kind of coverage uh, for insurance, and even those with um, private insurance often have co-pays and deductibles. And so the funding for insurance becomes very uncertain. And you add to that the fact that the public doesn't think about vaccines for adults very much, except for perhaps flu. And providers are not nearly as keyed in on immunizations as providers are when they take care of children. So adult immunization levels for the currently for the current spectrum of recommended vaccines are way less than they are for children and adolescents that's just the real state of affairs it's a sad state of affairs but there you are it also seems to me that in the adult medicine that 
that regular checkups are not necessarily all that much of a thing, both in terms of, you know, healthy adults feeling like, well, I'm a healthy adult, I don't need to be seen all that often, but also, and I don't know actually what current adult guidelines are, but I don't necessarily think that all providers say, oh yes, you need to come in every year like clockwork to have that checkpoint to check and see if you're up to date and, and you know, at those points being able to see if that person needs any immunizations. Is that something that you feel like is also a factor? Because that seems to be when I when I have had personal experience or talked to others, that, that seems to be the case. Nathan, you're right on. <clears throat> and I like to do a little thought experiment when I'm doing grand rounds and talking on this topic. If you go into a pediatrician's or family doctor's waiting room, you see a lot of basically healthy kids and pediatricians and family doctors are devoted to healthy living, uh, growth and development. If you walk into the waiting room of an internist, a lot of old people, a lot of frail people, uh, they're obese people. They're almost all on multiple medications. They have life circumstances that are difficult. And so internists are managing illnesses and therapies, and they're not nearly as devoted. They don't have enough time to devote to healthy growth and development, healthy living. And so Vaccines are often an afterthought. Hmm. Is that something that you think is changing or what can we do to change the landscape on that so that both in terms of, of thinking of adults in a more preventative uh, view, but also in terms of getting those vaccines done on time? Well, the first thing I would say is that there is a quiet revolution going on out there and particularly younger people still healthy are thinking about healthy living and they're interested in their diet, they're interested in exercise, getting enough sleep, uh, having a life work balance, a family work balance, all of those things are more important I think to younger people than they were to previous generations and if we could educate them a little bit more about vaccines I think we could integrate that into their thinking. I'm going to come back to this a couple of times I'm afraid but one of the barriers that we have to negotiate around it's there we just have to deal with it is the funding structure and that does make it difficult. So uh, structure in terms of outreach to adults we're talking about or also in terms of actually being able to provide the vaccines to adults? What kind of funding is needed to, to improve these rates? Well, you know, we have for infants, children, and adolescents basically a national uh, childhood immunization mm -hmm. program, which is a private partner, a private public partnership. We don't have that same commitment yet for adult immunization. And even the public programs have substantial limitations. Medicaid varies greatly from state to state in how much a provider is paid to administer vaccines and even how much they receive for the vaccines themselves. And even Medicare has profound limitations. Just to go down that road for a moment, mm -hmm. Medicare provides for people age 65 and older, of course, a first dollar coverage for both influenza vaccine and pneumococcal vaccine. That's wonderful. Anybody over age 65 and everyone signs up for Medicare can come in, come in to a pharmacy or a healthcare provider with their Medicare card, get their annual flu shot and get their appropriate pneumococcal immunizations 
and not pay a penny. And the, the provider will be given an administration fee. But if you talk about shingles vaccine or tetanus diphtheria acellular pertussis, Tdap vaccine, just for examples, they're not in part B, where flu and pneumo are, but they're in part D, D as in dog, which is really the prescription drug benefit. And that's all structured to work best in a pharmacy circumstance when you're buying pills. It's adapted for vaccines, and indeed it's so adaptable that at Vanderbilt, our internists send all their patients to the pharmacy to receive their vaccines. It's much less complicated than trying to stock the vaccines in their own offices and bill out of an office. So that provides a disincentive for the average doc to uh, get terribly interested in those vaccines. There's nothing in, in it for us. And so that just the, all of those things are structural barriers that are out there. Now, I don't want to go on and on and be grumpy <laughs> because there are many things that we can do given the structures that we have nonetheless to enhance adult immunization. And we should. We may not get to 100%, but we can move the needle up. So I want to go back for just a second because you you mentioned the pneumococcal and influenza vaccines being in Part B. Um, I know I've heard some talk and I don't completely understand it about the two different pneumococcal vaccines that can mm. be given to people through Medicare and that one is far more expensive than the other and there's also some confusion in, among adults certainly but maybe even among doctors about which pneumococcal vaccine should be given mm. it it's it's a complicated recommendation but for people age 65 and older who've never received pneumococcal vaccine in the past there are indeed two pneumococcal vaccines on reaching age 65 the first vaccine you could you should get is pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, so-called PCV13, pneumococcal conjugate vaccine 13. Then a year later, that should be followed by pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine. It is complicated. My impression is that physicians have really keyed on the first half of the equation they're out there trying to give pneumococcal conjugate vaccine to everybody who reaches age 65, but they haven't yet integrated a year later administering polysaccharide vaccine with the same assurance. So we're working on that. And uh, the uh, the PCV13 is that, if I understand it correctly, that's the same, that, that's Prevnar, basically. That's what we give that's as Prevnar, pediatricians. Prevnar 13, right. Yep. And so you want to give that one first. If I remember this correctly, you want to give that first mm -hmm. to older adults, um, because if you give the polysaccharide vaccine first, then that can blunt the response of the conjugate vaccine. Am I getting that correct? You're correct. That's also a philosophy that we do in, in pediatrics, too. There are rare cases where we give that polysaccharide vaccine um, people with certain um, immunological uh, conditions or people with cochlear implants. And so you want mm -hmm. to give them in that order, if I recall. That's, yes, that's the best order. Now, there are some people who, under previous recommendations, 
before they were age 65 because they had underlying heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, and other indications, may have indeed already received pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine. So let's say they got it at age 54. They now turn age 65. What do you do? Well, since the interval has been longer than a year, you can go ahead and give conjugate vaccine without worrying about the blunting. But leave the interval between the two vaccines at least a year. While we're on the topic, can you just, in case there are listeners who don't really know, talk about what the importance of uh, these two vaccines is? What, uh, what, do, what do these vaccines help reduce and why is it important in that age group? Right. So, so pneumococci are bacteria. Uh, they're best known for causing pneumonia but they also cause what we call invasive disease, namely, namely bloodstream infections, and they can also cause meningitis. There are about 40,000 cases of pneumococcal invasive disease that occur each year. And these vaccines, if, if the world is ideal, will prevent many of them. Without going into a long song and dance, there are many different pneumococcal types about a hundred. However, these two vaccines will protect against the most commonly occurring types. And in addition, particularly the, the data are particularly strong for pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. There's also the sense that they will prevent many cases of pneumonia that are not severe enough to also be complicated by bloodstream infection, so-called community-acquired pneumonia. Not every case of pneumonia, but many. So these are serious diseases, particularly in older people. For example, pneumococci in the bloodstream, so-called bacteremia or sepsis, still carries a fatality rate of somewhere between 10 and 15%. So that's not a disease that you would like to have. This despite all the treatments we have in the 21st century. And then you had mentioned influenza. Uh, so I'm trying to think of the, just making sure that we covered our bases with what vaccines are recommended for adults. Um, influenza is recommended for adults. Influenza sometimes gets a bad rap in terms of efficacy. Uh, and particularly, as I understand it, for um, uh, older age groups. Mm -hmm. But there is or has been a higher dose influenza vaccine, correct, for mm -hmm. older age groups. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I don't really know how well that works or what data is out there for it. Yep. That's just kind of outside my wheelhouse. Sure. Uh, so first of all, influenza is an annual disease that we ought to take very seriously causes, depending upon the severity of the season, on average about 200,000 hospitalizations and anywhere from 2,000 to 40,000 excess deaths each year. So we ought to do everything we can to prevent influenza. Influenza vaccine is not a perfect vaccine. It's good, but not perfect. And as you say, Nathan, its effectiveness uh, varies depending upon how robust you are and how strong your immune system is. It works better in younger people than older people. It's paradoxical. We'd like to protect the older people better, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But nonetheless, any protection is better than none. I like to quote 
or at least paraphrase that old French philosopher Voltaire, who said, waiting for perfection is the great enemy of the current good. <laughs> and we can do a lot of good with this pretty good vaccine because it will prevent a lot of disease. And then I tell my patients who come back after the flu season and say, Doc, you gave me the vaccine. I still got the flu. And I say, Tom, I'm so glad you're here to complain. You didn't have to go to the emergency room. You didn't get pneumonia. And look at that. You didn't die. And <laughs> flu vaccine will make a serious case of flu by and large milder, not as serious. So we ought to hold on to that thought. Now, what about making things better for older people? The lights are on in the research laboratories at night. Everybody's trying to make a better flu vaccine. There are now two vaccines that have been made, especially for people age 65 and older, and they've both been demonstrated to provide enhanced protection, better protection. The first is called high dose. That's made by a company named Sanofi Pasteur. There's more influenza vaccine in the vaccine, and that's why it gives the immune system a bit more punch. The other is from a company called Securus, and it has an adjuvant in it, which is an immune stimulant. And it also gives you better protection. Uh, it's thought to be somewhere between 24% and 30% better protection against influenza. So he, at Vanderbilt, we're trying to give everyone age 65 and older one of these two vaccines because we think it's better for the patient. And then if when I think of adult vaccines, and I think we mentioned these two already, so I also think about shingles vaccine. Mm. And what am I missing? OTDAPs for adults. Sure. Um, pick one of those. Which one should we talk about next? Well, let's talk about shingles because there are exciting previews of coming attractions. Uh, we all know that shingles is recrudescent chickenpox. We have mm -hmm. chickenpox when we're young. The chickenpox goes into hibernation, and then it comes out in a stripe on our bodies. It can be really dangerous if it's on your face and involves the eye, and it's it's painful. It's ugly. It's it's nasty for about a week and a half or two, and then recedes. But in many people, and this is true, more true the older you get, it can you can be left with residual pain, post-shingles pain, or fancy name, post-herpetic neuralgia. And this can be pain that is set off by just having your trunk touched by your shirt or a breeze come on it, and it can be sudden, sharp, and severe. And it can go on and off like that for months, interfering with sleep and eating, drive you to more than distraction and change your life. So this is something we would like to prevent. We've had a shingles vaccine, which is basically a big punch chickenpox vaccine, chickenpox vaccine that contains 16 times more virus than does the one we use in kids. And that stimulates immunity, gives us our immune system a big boost. 
it had an effectiveness of about 50 to 60 percent in preventing shingles and about 66 percent in preventing post shingles pain that's great one dose but the protection waned over time such that when you got out seven to ten years later you were back to baseline and there are very few data on re-immunization and there's currently no re-immunization scheduled that's why the recommendation was if you only have one shot in your pistol when do you fire it and the cdc's advisory committee on immunization practices said wait until age 60 because after that time your shingles increases in in, in occurrence now the previews of coming attractions are that another company has developed an adjuvanted killed shingles vaccine takes two doses hmm. huh. but all the published stuff so far says that it provides protection of over 90 percent it looks like that protection is sustained and even if you give it to people over age 70 the protection is virtually 90 percent it's astounding that all that material is sitting at the food and drug administration and it is anticipated they have a timeline by which they have to work it's anticipated that we will hear whether this vaccine will be licensed by october this year 2017 and at that point the cdc's advisory committee on immunization practices will provide recommendations about how that vaccine ought to be used at which age it ought to be given and whether people who've been previously vaccinated with the first shingles vaccine ought to get this second one uh, it's two doses instead of one and it's more of an ouchy vaccine there are more local reactions is there any sense that you've picked up that this would be recommended at a younger age i hear from plenty of people who have had shingles younger than age 60 that they said oh man i wish i could have had the shingles vaccine i would like to have avoided this um i don't know what age range this vaccine is has been tested at, at. Mm -hmm. so any any inkling of that yeah so mm -hmm. it's 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 been in clinical trial for people age 50 and over and as part of the shingles vaccine working group of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, I'm permitted to tell you that that question is under careful discussion, but I can't tell you which way they're leaning. Uh, but stay tuned. The information okay. will be out there. <laughs> Here's open. So I, I was wondering, you know, we're talking a lot about um, vaccines when you're 60, 65 years old, but you become an adult, you launch into formal adulthood in, in vaccine-wise when you're 19. Mm -hmm. Are there any vaccines that we should be getting between ages 19 right. and 65? You know, I'm, I'm a, a somewhere in there. Um, so is, is there anything I should be looking at or people my age? Sure, there are several things. Uh, the first of all, all of us should get flu vaccines. So that's 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 an easy recommendation. If you're older than six months of age, you should get flu vaccine each and every year. Don't think about it. Just roll up your sleeve and get it. Uh, beyond that, uh, we have several vaccines that are worth talking about. Not every young adult received hepatitis B vaccine when they were adolescent. 
because uh, docs were just getting used to giving that vaccine. So there are a lot of people in their 20s and 30s who have not received hepatitis B vaccine. And let me give you two important indications for the vaccine. The first has to do with your sexual intimacies. If you're a person who has more than one sexual partner, particularly more than one in the last couple of uh, the last six months, you should definitely get hepatitis B vaccine because this is a virus that's transmitted uh, sexually. That that actually applies to an awful lot of people in the United States. Even a larger population is that since 2011, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices has recommended that everyone who's diabetic should receive hepatitis B vaccine as soon as possible after their diagnosis up to age 60. And that's because there are really good data now to show that at every age and gender, diabetics have a higher risk of hepatitis B than their non-diabetic counterparts. That's a recommendation that is not very well known by providers who care for people with diabetes. So those are two very important uh, indications for hepatitis B vaccine. And I'll, I'll go on. Uh, let me just mention uh, there are young women and young men, basically under the age of 26, who have not received HPV, human papillomavirus vaccine, that wonderful anti-cancer vaccine, both in women and men. Yes, they ought to receive it if they missed out or didn't get their full complement of doses as teenagers. And then, of course, uh, if you haven't received your dose of Tdap, you should. Uh, this is particularly important for uh, families who are going to have children because infants are the most vulnerable to pertussis, that is whooping cough. So we want to have the entire family complement immunized. And the really with it obstetricians now are telling the expectant mothers have all those grandparents, Aunt Susie, Uncle Tom, anyone who wants to come in and see the baby, don't let them near the baby unless they've received Tdap. Well, it sounds like that covers pretty much all the ones that I can think of. I, have, I actually have a question, too, about hepatitis A vaccines. Oh, um, good question. My family, yeah. My family and I were on the way to Hawaii last fall, and I happened to know that there was um, a hepatitis outbreak <laughs> in Honolulu when we were going there. So I went to my doctor and said, I would like a hepatitis A vaccine, please, so that I don't get hepatitis A when, because I'm the only person in my family who hadn't had one yet. Um, and that might be my special paranoia or my special love for vaccines, but uh, you know, who should consider getting a hepatitis A vaccine? Well, you know, it should be routine for all children and adolescents starting at age 12 months. So pediatrician, it's actually among the childhood vaccines, the one where there's the lowest compliance. So just recently, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices uh, upgraded the strength of its recommendation, speaking to pediatricians and family doctors that if you find that the adolescent missed their, their infancy and young childhood dose, 
be sure and close that gap and give them hepatitis A vaccine. But among adults, uh, in addition to those people who travel internationally to the developing world where they should all get hepatitis A vaccine, the recommendations are basically to people who are, uh, to men who have sex with men. That's the major indication for hepatitis A vaccine domestically beyond childhood. Not people traveling to Hawaii. Uh, not, <laughs> well, I think you detected an outbreak indeed in Honolulu, yes. and that's extraordinary. So that's not the usual run of the mill. Uh, we still have outbreaks of hepatitis A, first among MSMs, uh, and some of those folks acquire their affection abroad, bring it home, and then give it to their intimate partners, uh, but also through in contaminated food that's brought into this country that's then not cooked, such as onions and radishes and sometimes cantaloupes and strawberries and things such as that. But those occur sporadically, and other than immunizing the population and watching those immune adolescents get older, uh, there's not much we can do to protect against that, except try to do everything we can to assure a safe food supply when the food comes in from abroad. Is there anything that adults can do who are not in the insurance sphere or the policymaking sphere or the medical sphere, sort of the rest of us, us lay people? Is there anything we can do to help boost immunization rates among other adults? Well, it would be wonderful if people thought about vaccinations and their immunization history when they went to their physicians and healthcare providers and volunteer it and be ready to receive vaccines on recommendation. And then do everything you can to make sure your entire family is vaccinated. Start with influenza. Everyone should receive an annual flu vaccine and take it from there. Thank you so much for joining us t today. Um, it's I, I always love listening to you speak, and I'm so happy to bring your wise words, your erudite um, proclamations to the rest of the world. So thank you so much for that. Karen and Nathan, it's been just a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> And uh, I just want to remind people that you've been listening to Vax Talk from Voices for Vaccines. You can join Voices for Vaccines at www.voicesforvaccines.org slash join hyphen us or just visit voicesforvaccines.org and read everything on the whole website. My name is Karen Ernst and I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician at Blank Jones Hospital in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. You can find me on Twitter uh, at... Uh, PedsGeekMD or my blog, PedsGeekMD.com. Thank you very much. And uh, keep listening. We've got more episodes coming. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you.